we're taking a look this morning at the story of people who worked in Papua New Guinea as key-ups or patrol officers. We don't hear a lot about that work in history and it worked and happened for a long time. On ABC Radio, you're with Trevor Chappell. Our guests this morning are both ex-patrol officers, um, Alan Johnson and John Hucknell. John, good morning. Good morning, Trevor. John, can we just talk to you firstly about how you first started? Sure. Um, I'm a qualified aircraft engineer by trade as an apprentice. I finished my apprenticeship, left the UK and came out to Australia and um, found that uh, it was going to take me 20 years to get a promotion with the the airline I was working with. And I was reading an evening newspaper. There was a little advert in there that said something along the lines of, do you want to lead a man's life, become an assistant patrol officer in Papua New Guinea? And I thought, well, that sounds pretty good. So I applied for it, um, got the job, and then had to find out where Papua New Guinea was. <laughs> we'll go back to Alan for a second. Are you there, Alan? Yes, I am, Trevor. Ah, hi, Alan. Can you just tell us what key-up means? Well, key-up is actually, I believe it's a, a, a pigeon word for captain that was uh, harks back to the German occupation of what was then New Guinea um, prior to the uh, First World War, and it's a contraction of captain, I believe. And what was the job for a, a patrol officer or a key-up? Well, <laughs> many and varied, Trevor. Uh, that's probably the best description of it. Uh, we key-ups represented the administration usually on outstations, and... Uh, it was a lawmaking position. Uh, some were magistrates, uh, exploration, um, settling areas, uh, road building, um, general uh, administration. And working for the Australian government? Yeah, well, working for the PNG government under the Australian government, the Department of External Territories initially, later the Papua New Guinea administration. Can, and John, can I just uh, can I ask you as well? What was the relationship like with locals in town, or uh, in in the villages that you went to? Oh, very very good. I mean, they uh, we respected them and they respected us, and uh, we were also seen as middlemen. In as much as if there was a any kind of dispute, um, the the people knew that they could come to us and talk to us about whatever it was and the, the dispute would get resolved generally um, with the wisdom of Solomon. What was the, the, the relationship like, though, with local law in comparison to what was would have been considered European law, I guess, and finding a place in between the two? Oh, that's when you get down to the difference between the administration of the law and the administration of justice. Hmm. Two different things. Is, was that relationship important as well, Alan? Oh, absolutely. Uh, quite often the, the the cultural law impacted on a magistrate's decision as well if they were making that decision. Um, the respect for culture was important, except when it came to capital offences, but even then capital offences would be Treated according, partly according to um, to traditional law too. I'm only aware. I mean, because I was lucky enough to go to Pangaea 
and go uh, up there and visit friends of the family, um, Barry Caldwood up in Pangia. And it was an incredible experience for me to be able to go out and patrol with him. So my experience is from that respect, which would have been in the early to mid-70s. But how long, how far back does it go, Alan, patrol officing? Well, it goes back to well before uh, the Second World War. Um, But bear in mind both territories, what was then New Guinea and what was then Papua, were treated slightly differently until the United Nations mandated uh, that Australia assume um, uh, the role of, of, of administrator of New Guinea as well. Um, while the, the, the uh, treatment of, of the, the mandate was slightly different uh, to Papua, they're all encapsulated in one unit. So after, oh, as I said, it goes back quite a long way, back to the 20s, the early, early administration, um, the patrols were quite um, dramatic, quite long. Uh, the exploratory patrols at the early ones, certainly. Post World War, thing, uh, World War Two, things were quite, uh, quite different. They were more, more, more under the the administration and closely administrated than than they were prior to that. Uh, the districts were responsible for their own. Uh, agenda of patrols and that each individual district and each individual patrol post. So, yeah, yeah it, it's quite a complex um, situation up until, really up until self-government, then independence. The, um, also, cause, and I'll come back to John and you a second, um, but Alan, what sort of role did they have during the Second World War? Because we know a lot about uh, the role that New Guinea locals, Indigenous people in New Guinea, played as far as supporting Australian soldiers. What was it like for the patrol officers and the key-ups there? Well, most of them then became um, a part of the the, um, the Allied war movement, really. Uh, they certainly reported on um, Japanese, the story of the Coast Watchers was well known. Many of the key-ups became Coast Watchers. Uh, the administration, I think, I wasn't around then, obviously, but I think uh, it certainly slowed until after the war was over. Alan, I'll come back to you. I just wanted to talk to Malcolm McKellar, who served as a key up for almost 30 years from 1953 to 1982. Hello, Michael. I mean, Malcolm, how are you? Well, thank you. Malcolm, what sort of changes did you see in the job in such a long period of time? Oh, well, when I first went there, my first posting was... Lake Marriott, which is 350 miles up the up the Fly River, and uh, there was nothing there except me and uh, and, and about uh, um, uh, 12,000 native people, and uh, apart from the two missionaries, and that's all that was there. And these days, uh, of course, that's where the Octetti Mine is, and uh, and that was uh, uh, considerable developments taken place since then, but. And, the, and when I was first there, there was nothing there except me and a whole lot of crocodiles. And <laughs> the crocodiles ate the people, and the people ate the crocodiles. So. What was it like leading up to independence, Malcolm, and the role that the patrol officers key ups had leading into independence? Uh, well, a, a lot of it was was uh, sort of uh, political education. How we sort of uh, had uh, meetings and uh, explained to people. Uh, uh, what was likely to happen? Uh, a bit hard to for them to comprehend. Uh, of course, the, the educated 
people, you know, there, there, there was uh, people who'd been to university in Australia even and all that sort of stuff, so they, you know, they knew what was going to happen. But out in the bush, you know, no, the, the only government that people that then had known was the Kiap government, you know. It was a bit hard trying to explain, but like explaining red to a blind man, you know. He, he had no idea what was likely to, likely to happen, so. Malcolm, what did you like about the job? Oh, the variety and also the, the um, uh, it was an excellent public service, you know. When we first went there, we lived in very primitive com- conditions, you know, like lived in grass huts with uh, bucket chairs and and uh, and uh, hurricane lamps and that sort of stuff. But of course, as as time progressed, um, we you know the outstations had proper electricity supply and all that sort of thing. Mm. But one of the one of the the, the advantages of was, was the excellent leave conditions because. Uh, Working conditions were so primitive and so harsh. We were granted three months leave on full pay every two years, and six months leave on full pay every six years. So, uh, as a result of that, uh, you know, I, I went round the world three, about three or four times. You know, so I saw London, Paris, Berlin, and Rome before wow. I saw Melbourne. <laughs> <laughs> Malcolm, thank you, John. That period of time. Um, like pre-independence and the relationship, and also with missionaries as well, because the there were missionaries and also the key ups and patrol officers. Was that relationship an important one, John? Um, it was, and and it wasn't. Uh, I mean, we were there to administer to the people, and uh, the missionaries were there to administer to their souls. And um, there's a bit of difference between somebody's soul and the actual human being. Oh, well, that's a good point as well. Look, Malcolm, thank you for giving us a call. Um, Alan, that time pre-independence, because I was asking Malcolm about that, How? what was it like actually talking about that and introducing the new system? Well, it involved, you know, we. it was part of what we had to do at the time, uh, political education. In a lot of areas, uh, local government councils had been established uh, as part of our function. And through those local government councils was an important channel to get the message across about uh, independence and self-government forthcoming. Um, people had radios in some of the villages. It does depend where you were. If you were in some of the more isolated areas, there was no radio reception. And and as John said, you know, oh, as uh, um, um, Malcolm, Malcolm said, it was yeah, it was uh, uh, pretty limited. Uh, primitive living conditions in some areas. And it might, that made the issue of, of uh, telling people about uh, what was going to happen in, in terms of self-government and independence, uh, particularly if there was no way of understanding it. Uh, we'll come back to you in just a second. Daphne's called. Hello, Daphne. Oh, good morning. How are you? Well, thanks, Daphne. What did you I, want to you've say? We've got an interesting conversation. Oh, you just asked if anybody had worked pre-independence hmm. and I worked as a nurse in um, well I spent a, f- a few weeks in Port Moresby for a start just getting a clinic house getting to know a little bit about the health situation and that and then I went to Ninga in Rebel and I learned more about midwifery and again um, Sorry Daphne you're phasing in and out Oh sorry I can turn it up a bit louder if you like it's Okay. So where did you go? Um, 
I then went to Bougainville um, after I was in Rebel for a short time too. I was sent for the rest of my term, which was a two-year term. I had three years leave, uh, three months leave at the end of that time. But I worked um, on a little um, station that had representatives from the health for um, um, malaria control hmm. and um, key up uh, education, all the different areas, I suppose, that they had in the Australian um, government up there. Do you remember the patrol officers, Daphne? Yeah, I do. Um, I wish I could remember their name. That's uh, okay. Um, yeah, and we, we, we just loved our time up there, we, we, as well as doing our job. We learned to socialise with the different people and it was just totally new for me living on this little island with the Chinese. It was a very um, Sahano that I was based on was in Bougainville and we called the Northern Island North Booker and um, South Booker and Big Booker where Kyoto was and that was just the time before when they first started um, getting the mining going and that. We had a friend that um, did a lot of the surveying and he became friendly with um, the nurse I worked with. It was just sort of like a two-nurse station. Plus we had a, a triple nurse as well. Uh, she used to go out on patrols out into the villages and uh, bring in any little ones that look, were in risk of um, losing their life because they wouldn't look after twins. Daphne, look, I've got to go move on because I just want to go back to Alan to talk about th- the patrols and actually how isolated areas are, um, Alan, because I remember where we were in Pangia, we went from Mount Hagen to Pangia by four-wheel drive and then going out on patrol, you would walk for long periods of times into villages and it was fascinating going into villages because it was a time when, when village life was exactly that and it was... Um, we're looking at very traditional village life. Oh, exactly. Most of my time was spent in the Western Province, which was now the Western Province. Um, I was at, also at Lake Murray, where, where Malcolm was, um, and places like Nomad River, which at that time, at Nomad in Nomad, the uh, areas were there was still practiced cannibalism, um, very little contact with, with the administration. Um so you can imagine, and again, uh, no power and uh, um, fairly primitive living conditions, and that continued for a long, long time. Uh, gradually, if you're on an actual, uh, well, like Lake Murray, for example, uh, by the time I got there uh, in the, the mid-60s, um, there was power on the station and uh, uh, permanent materials houses by then, but Nomad was different again. Uh, you're lucky to get an aircraft um, once a month, depending on the uh, supply aircraft, depending on the weather. And then patrols could be gone for as long as six weeks, perhaps longer in some areas, depending on the nature of the country and, and how rugged it was. I'll come, but John, I'll come to you and, and ask you this question as well. I, when we went on patrol and went into villages um, with Barry, what struck me, and there was I was about 11 or 12 at the time, was the conversations. Like it was you go into the village and it would be conversations about what's happening, is everything okay? It wasn't about necessarily changing anything that happened culturally within that village, but just having conversations about how things were. Is that what part of the job was? 
Oh, yes, exactly. In the more settled areas, certainly, and uh, in the not-so-settled areas, again, like Nomad, it was uh, you approached the... There was no village as such. The people lived in longhouses, sometimes with maybe 100 people in the one longhouse, and, and you approached quite carefully. Um, and then it was about, again, about what was happening. You may have been trying to just to meet people, uh, um, through sometimes through two interpreters because of the the different language barriers. So you, in some areas you could expect a hostile reception depending on the amount of contact that it had. But on the on the more settled areas that it had contact for many many years, you'd be perhaps doing census. You might be uh, assisting uh, uh, um, the medical person, the nurse, or the the local medical assistant or the aides or aid post uh, orderly to to administer, for example, your anti-yours injections. So there were, the patrol could have had a multitude of functions uh, or just, as I said, the annual census. Um, John, how important was that establishment of relationships with locals? Oh, it was vital because if uh, you wanted to get your message across, or not your message, but the government's message across, um, again, as I said, you, you had to have the respect of the locals and, and vice versa uh, to be able to do the job properly. Um, on another point, uh, if, if you're in touch with Barry and Rita, say hi from me and pass on my phone number. I was lucky enough to, to be in touch with their daughter, Sue, not long ago. Um, so I will definitely do that. Thank you. The, but with that relationship, though, there's a fair degree of responsibility as well, because the, you've got a responsibility of supporting locals and making sure that their culture is kept alive and that they don't lose that, as, especially with Westerners coming into it. Yeah, that, that was that was very important to take that into consideration. And when you when you look at the fact that the, there are over eight hundred and fifty different languages and consequently eight hundred and fifty different cultures. Uh, you had to you had to be very aware of what was going on, and uh, and not necessarily um, go in their boots and all to to try and make change. I mean, you you had the difference between matrilineal and patrilineal uh, existence in the villages. Talking and administering to the people on the Trobriand Islands was absolutely different to talking to the people uh, in the, the, the Highlands area. And I, I, my last patrol post that I was at, one-man patrol post that I was at, I was in, administering next door to Alan in the Basavi area where the uh, kidnappings were taking place just recently. Um, Alan, there was also one of the things that I noticed in the reading was that there were a lot of people died and the, the rate of, of death within the job was quite high. Oh, look, yeah, I'm not sure of the exact numbers. I, I think John's more likely to have the exact numbers, but uh, considering post-war, there was, I think, only about 2,000 uh, recruited uh, I don't think there's, there's not that many of them of us left either at the moment. But uh, yeah, I only know one personally that was was killed in the line of duty. But John may have more about the exact numbers. The, I'll come back to John. But what was it you actually enjoyed about the job as well, Alan? Oh, look, the best way to describe it, it was a, a completely life-forming experience. You went, I went there as an 18-year-old, and left uh, over 28. 
I was over 28 when I left, uh, and I was a totally changed person, as you can imagine. But um, uh, I wouldn't say exactly immature, but it at the time, but it, you became mature quite quickly. Uh, but the enjoyment of the job, I absolutely love the job, and I think. Sorry. No, go on, because I'm fascinated by when I was first doing the reading about this, because Barry was, I mean, he would have been in his, I guess, late 30s, early 40s, I think, when he was there. But I was amazed to see that there were people as young as Alan, 18, going in doing that job, because it's a huge responsibility for such a young person. Well, for a long time, it was only the more junior, 18, perhaps to the mid-20s that were recruited. Uh, later on, it became obvious that they needed to open it up and uh, mature age patrol officers were recruited and many of them indeed married at the time. But when when I was recruited and indeed well before that and so for some time after, uh, there were only single officers recruited. Because that, that is, John, that is quite a young age for people to be doing such a responsible position. Uh, oh, definitely. I mean, I was... I was 21 when I went up, and I was one of six married couples in our intake of 35. I'm a Johnny-come-lately compared to, to Alan and Ma- Malcolm. Uh, I, I went up in 71, and one of the, I was probably the third last intake of uh, assistant patrol officers into Papua New Guinea. Um, but... Um, I mean, they, they, it was life-changing. You had to definitely have your wits about you. And, um, you know, our, we we were on duty 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It, it was just no... Um, you, you got recreation time, but if you were out in the water hall having a swim and somebody came up to you and said, you know, we've had a, a theft or a murder or whatever, you had to stop whatever you were doing and go on and, and get on with it. Um, Bob, good morning. Good morning, Trev. Um, mate, in the 1960s, I was in high school and uh, we were going to learn about the cooker cookers, but they had killed and eaten a couple of the patrol officers and they banned us and we had to learn about the Maasai instead. This is New South Wales education system. And one last point, the uh, Kanga Force was the first group of fellows that fought the Japanese when they landed in New Guinea, and it was made up of a mix of people, including patrol officers. They were the first to fight the Japanese in the Second World War. Thank you, because, um, John, you would think that local knowledge the patrol officers had during the Second World War would have been significant. Oh, it was vital. Um, if you just take uh, Milne Bay as an example, where where the first defeat of the the Japanese on land was, um, the the port in Alato um, was built by 700 uh, Papua New Guinean labourers and one patrol officer who was there to administer the whole thing and get the 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 dock and the wharf built in Alato. It, so that's the, that's the sort of work that was happening during the Second War. We're taking a look this morning at the role that patrol officers had in Papua New Guinea up until independence and possibly for a little bit after. We'll cover that in just a second. Our guests this morning are both ex-patrol officers, um, Alan Johnson and John Hucknell. Alan, we mentioned a little bit about language. How important was it to make sure that the language wasn't lost? And I'd presume that in New Guinea, the same as in Australia, there'd be a lot of local language. 
Oh, absolutely. And as I said, generally, um, in, in, in on the New Guinea side, Pigeon English was used by patrol officers, key apps to usually through an interpreter um, uh, to the locals. Uh, in Papua, the lingua franca was uh, police motor. So they're two quite distinct uh, ways of communicating. But um, there was no likelihood of local language being lost. Um, schools were taught, uh, the kids were taught in the schools, they were taught English, uh, both in the mission schools and um, and in the government schools on some outstations. But uh, generally, communic- you know, I spoke um, Motu, and I'm shooting John spoke Pigeon, I spoke a bit of Pigeon, but that was for use either directly to the to the local people that spoke those universal languages, or through an interpreter to uh, uh, to to achieve the same purpose. Um, just your comments on that as well, John, about the the use of local language as much as possible, I guess. But it'd be difficult to, especially if you're going into different areas, getting a full grasp of local language. Yeah, well, I mean, we picked up various bits and pieces, just like um, if you go to France and you say, you you want to say uh, thank you or good morning or whatever in French, they they turn around and think that you're at least making an effort. So I I used to do that wherever I was, was to try and learn, you know, good morning in the local language um, or thank you or hello or whatever. Um, And that broke down a lot of barriers. But my main communication was through Pigeon English, I actually got pulled off uh, a couple of years ago uh, in a school in in Alato. I went in and started speaking pidgin English to the to the kids in the class, and the teacher took me to the principal's office and had my wrist slapped for talking pidgin in class because they needed to teach the kids English so they could go on to high school and not to university. <laughs> I like pidgin because you got to say "ass" belong things, and I just thought saying "ass" was just excellent. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, Barbara, hello. Oh, good morning. Yes. Uh, I was just uh, ringing. Unfortunately, my husband's still, uh, he's upstairs asleep. But we went up in, or he went up in 1960 with TAA to take over from Qantas. And he, a lot of the time, not a lot of the time, but sometimes was the first to fly into remote airstrips in the southern and eastern highlands. Um, and he we flew in regularly to Manyamia, um, which was a restricted area, and had you had to have a permit. Barbara, I've got I've got a lot of people to talk to. And we've got, I'm just mindful we've got eight minutes to go, and I've got a couple of texts that I wanted to mention. Um, John, some of those airstrips were um, more of a bit of a road than possibly an airstrip on occasions. Oh, most definitely. And the KIAPs generally were the first people that surveyed where the strips went and and were in charge of the Labour gangs building them. There was a, an airstrip in, in uh, the Matang province called Tep-Tep, and it was at 15%. When they touched down at the, the threshold of the, of the airstrip, the pilot had to... F- push the throttles full forward to drive up the hill to get to the top and jump on the brakes at the top before if you if you didn't you'd fall off the edge of the cliff Alan I've got a text here saying were you ever scared or were you frightened um, again I when I went to the village in Pangia and this would have been in about 1972 I mean it was confronting and it was challenging and I learned a lot but I don't think I ever felt scared but I wasn't in the same position that you were in 
Oh, again, it depends on the circumstances, but mm. certainly uh, there, there were there were times when uh, when I was scared. That, you know, in if there was a major incident, a riot, for example, and that had to be quelled, or or in those areas where you were doing initial contact work, uh, when the situation became uh, difficult with a, a large number of people rattling bows and arrows and surrounding you, and you were trying to settle the situation down, it became certainly did become quite scary. You, John? Oh, yes, uh, especially later on when alcohol came into play, you're standing in the front of a, a, a whole group of people on payday Thursday and they'd just been down to the local off-licence and bought all the hot beer, um, definitely. Um, I think I'd, I was more frightened of being chased by a wild boar in the jungle one time, Alan. That was the scariest thing that ever happened to me. <laughs> Or a cassowary. Or yeah. a cassowary, it's true too. Um, Jerry joins us. Hello, Jerry. Oh, hello. Yeah, look, in the mid-60s, uh, three of us who were um, students, university students, spent uh, three months up in the Asiki, uh, Bema, Kantiba area, um, which was on the, what you call it, the western side of the... Rangers, yeah. So we had a three-day walk in. We were flown up to a place called um, Asiki, and then we had a three-day walk into Bema, Kantiba, and then we were there for a couple of months helping a mission group to build um, a uh, chapel, and then we had a walk out for about five days to Bololo or Bululo, over right on the other side. And they were the Kuka Kuka people. The uh, we used to call them the killers in the uh, in the bark clubs. So that was really quite a fascinating time. It is. Look, um, I'll ask you too, John, and then I'll come back to you again, Alan. Do you think that we know enough about what what the Kiaps did, but not only that, that we actually know enough about New Guinea itself and especially its history? No, I think there's... Well, the Papua New Guineans don't know a lot about their, their old history either. Um, I don't know why, they, they, uh, but you know, we we do our best. I I uh, travel up and down uh, quite frequently on cruise ships and uh, try and uh, give the the passengers a, a decent education before they get to experience the place. Um, but um, you're talking about uh, the, the early days. Prior to being patrol officers and or kiaps, kiaps in the in the German uh, New Guinea area. Um, there were there were called resident magistrates, and they were the ones that administered the the law. and And the earliest known death is a, a guy called Ingham, who the town of Ingham is named after. Um, and he was the first uh, resident magistrate or kiap to be killed in Papua New Guinea, and that was in 1878. And uh, since then, the, between 1878 and 1978, when the last death is recorded, um, there were 88 uh, kiaps that died in service in Papua New Guinea of the just over 2,000 that, that served in the entire time. We don't have the, the figures for German New Guinea uh, because that all changed after the um, 1914, obviously. Um, but... Uh, you know, anybody, anybody and everybody that's interested, uh, we're trying to get a memorial to those patrol officers that didn't come home, um, built somewhere, probably in Canberra, 
Um, but if anybody's interested, they want to send an email to KIAPS Memorial, that's K-I-A-P-S Memorial at gmail.com. Um, they can chat with uh, with Bill Sanders, who's administering the whole thing, and um, we'd love to to hear from anybody uh, that has a, a relative um, that that of uh, a key app that died in PNG, so that we've actually got their their input into the memorial. Um, Alan, post um, independence, so. What sort of changes did you see occur around the time leading up to independence? Oh, look, um, I, I, the, it was probably the, yeah, look, I guess it was the, the numbers of local officers, Indigenous officers that became, there were always some during the period that I, I, was, I was in Papua New Guinea, uh, but the increasing numbers of Indigenous officers who took over outstations. Um, the the localisation process, as I, as I mentioned, was in full swing by the time I, I went on long service leave and didn't go back. Um, that's another story, but uh, certainly uh, that would have been, as far as the administration in outlying areas, would be the most obvious um, change that you could see happening. Um, and and indeed, those local officers that that uh, that I had with me at varying times and who took over on me were from me were really highly competent people, and and some of them went on to much bigger and better things. Alan, are you surprised that it isn't a, there isn't more tourism into New Guinea? And I don't know what the situation is like at the moment, but it's a beautiful country. It is absolutely a beautiful country, uh, and and. In this day and age, I guess a lot of people aren't so willing to, to rough it, but um, in this day and age, there's no roughing it, really. What you experience, I would think, in Papua New Guinea today would be similar to be glamping in the uh, in northern um, Western Australia. Yeah, it's a, and would you see it feel the same way, John? Oh, yes, there's fabulous places there, and it's a burgeoning business. Uh, there, there are a lot of opportunities, uh, both... Uh, inland and around the coast, the the number of there's over a hundred cruise ships are going to be going into Papua New Guinea um, this this year, um, and uh, unfortunately they only ever stick to the coast. They never see the beauty of the interior. Oh, the the Highlands, I, is, uh, it's just beautiful up in the Highlands of that country. Look, thank you to both of you for joining us on the program, um, Alan and John. John, very quickly, if people want to know more about what the key ups do, is there a place they can look? Um, they can go on to the XKIAP website. They'll get to look at the uh, um, conversations that are taking place. But uh, if they really want to know what happened early on in the piece, they should go to their local library and see if they can get a copy of a book called The Sky Travellers. The Sky Travellers, Journeys in New Guinea, 1938 to 1939, uh, by an author called Bill Gamage. Thank you to the people that joined us on the program to take a look at the role that Kiaps and patrol officers played in New Guinea, which probably isn't heard about as much as it possibly should be. And it's a beautiful country. Mm -hmm. 